Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10. 28 2 23 This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of Snark in Washington DC and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to the podcast. Every once in a while, we find a book that we think everybody needs to read, uh, and we try to persuade the author to come in and talk to us about that book, and that's just what we're doing today. Uh, The book is The Internationalists, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump, and the author is Alex Ward, who's an award-winning national security reporter at Politico, who was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and has done great work in many venues for a long time. It's a real pleasure to have you here, Alex. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I got to tell you, um, you know, I've written a bunch of books on how the national security process works. uh, So I have some experience with this process. And I am just dazzled by the work that you did. The reporting is superb. It is so complicated, the process. You captured that extremely well. Um, and uh, uh, and I think we live at a very dramatic moment. Um, uh, and, and you captured that well, the, the not just going from Trump to Biden, but the churn of global affairs, um, uh, which you've you know, gotten down into detail as we have this kind of great team, which also, for the benefit of your book and your readers, has a lot of interesting characters in it. So it's a it's a it's it's a good it's 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 a good story. Um, 
so, you know, beyond the congratulations and my encouragement to everybody to go out um, and, and, and read it, the, let's, let's sort of start at the beginning. These people came in, as you describe it, with great expectations. Uh, you know, Biden had more experience than any other foreign pol- president in in foreign policy than than we've ever seen. I mean, people used to say George H. W. Bush did. Biden had three times as much experience as he did, um, and um, and the team he had around him, as you put it, was these kind of A listers. It was really the A team. Um, but they very quickly were reminded that, you know, you know, the, the gods laugh at those who would make plants. Um, how, how, how did, when did that sort of thunderbolt hit them uh, in, in your sense of things? I think initially in a, small, in a smaller, a medium, and then, of course, a bigger way. I think the small way was when you know, Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken were in Anchorage to meet with their Chinese counterparts. And they, you know, they have the usual pro forma discussion beforehand, you know, happy to have this meeting. We're going to have a lot of tough conversations, et cetera, et cetera. And then the Chinese filibuster, right? And they just go on this pretty strong 12-minute or so tirade about why America's in the wrong position, why Biden's got the policy wrong. Of course, they were all, the Chinese were also reeling after four years of, of Donald Trump's pretty combative policy. And Blinken and Sullivan were like, whoa, hold on, hold on. We got to actually talk this through. And they were really taken aback by that. The funny thing is after the cameras were off, it was kind of fine. It was a normal meeting, normal business meeting. But the fact that the Chinese were willing to use such a prominent platform to basically, you know, trash America, I think took the U.S. by surprise and realized we might actually have a lot of messaging to do. So I think that's the smaller one. The medium one was the Israel-Hamas fight in 2021, right? where that broke out and the Biden administration's whole plan was we're going to keep the Middle East on this back burner. It's just not going to be a thing we're going to touch. We'll manage it. We'll keep it out there, but it ain't going to come back. As long as we as long as we keep it out there, we'll be fine. And then if so Hamas attacks, Israel retaliates, and the Biden administration's playbook is basically hug Bibi in, in public, push him in private. And that works to a certain extent. I mean, they, the, the fighting ends after 11 days, and then you have the Biden team go, hey, this playbook works. But we got to be careful that when these things crop up, we got to move real fast and real and, and go deep. And then the big one, uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal, right? The Biden, uh, President Biden knew he wanted to go out even before he became President Biden. He wanted out. They did do a review, but it was clear we were going to leave. The intelligence that he in part based his decision on was that it would take 18 to 24 months for the Taliban to take over Afghanistan. Now, of course, that was Panglossian, right? The the Taliban took over at a much faster clip. That intelligence timeline shrunk, but still, that's what the decision was based on. So they were surprised by this, uh, shocked at how they all missed this, at at the sweep of the Taliban, and how they had missed the Afghans' military's willingness to fight. And I think the other part of this was, though, interesting for them, is that look at how amazingly they improvise. I mean, with all the chaos surrounding them, and I don't want to say that Afghanistan was a success. success. It was not. Uh, we know we know it wasn't. But they were still able to get 120,000 or so people out, even with all with the country collapsing around them. A pretty impressive log- logistical feat with the greatest airlift, frankly, in, in history. So 
they learned. So first it was the messaging crisis, right? With China. Then it was the, all right, we actually still have to do crisis management, even if we want things on the back burner. And then it was, despite all our best efforts, things can go badly, but they took away some sense of pride at look how well we can improvise. And of course, just the notion of uh, Biden's own notion of I did nothing wrong. We did nothing wrong. It all went fine, even though 13 service members uh, died. And there was, of course, a humanitarian crisis just outside uh, the airport. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's very tempting for me to get bogged down in, in these things with regard to the Afghanistan thing. Um, I was in the small chorus of one that said, I thought everything went, you know, although things went badly in the last two weeks, it was a success because they got out, they ended the longest war in, in, in history. And I think that was the Biden rationale. But setting aside the debate over whether, you know, the the, the, the exit was was overshadowed by the specifics of those two weeks and, and the loss of life. Mm-hmm. Um one thing that has struck me, and I and I picked up on this in the book, was that not only was this the A team, but after the Anchorage meeting, uh, after the Hamas experience, as you just described it, um, in the midst of the Afghanistan experience, they learned, they adjusted, they changed their approach. You know, they put together in the Afghan thing an international working group to help oversee that, you know, um, with Wendy Sherman and, and you know, the, to help oversee getting out. Uh, and that mechanism ultimately served them later in Ukraine as they sort of coordinated with allies in a certain kind of a way. That, you know, some, some administrations don't learn. But was it your sense, do you agree with my sense, that, that these people tried to take in these lessons? Oh yes, there's no question. If there's if there's one of the you know thirty thousand foot takeaways, is that this is a learning organization, <laughs> right? I mean, I think right. one of the benefits of of having uh, Jake Sullivan as national security advisor, or at least having a debater as national security advisor, uh, is someone who really likes testing arguments. Is a bit Socratic method in the way he runs meetings, right? He will ask uh, questions that he feels he knows the answers to, and that he doesn't necessarily, you know, think. Uh, where he knows what he wants to hear, but he's willing to hear, you know, opposite views anyway. Uh, he's an interesting figure in all of this because I, 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 you know, have been saying as part of uh, my going around this, and I think my conclusion from the book is that he, he might be the most powerful national security advisor since Kissinger. I mean, just the, by virtue of how the mind meld he has with Biden, how, you know, because Biden's style of leadership here, as involved, as you noted, as he is in foreign affairs and how interested he is, he's kind of a uh, play in the sandbox guy. I'm going to give you your four corners and then you guys go execute outside of those within those boundaries. And that's happened on Afghanistan. That's happened on Ukraine. That's happened on Israel. Hamas. It's happened pretty much every single thing. And of course, who's the guy in charge of that? It's Sullivan. Biden has immense trust in him. They agree on many things. Um, and of course, Biden is well aware that Sullivan is sort of the intellectual underpinner of, of Biden foreign policy, although Biden, of course, is the ultimate decider. So you're right. Like they, they do learn. They, they, they are have an iterative process. And when you t- when I talk to them about process and I, I, as someone who covers the National Security Council, as you do, we love to talk about process. But th- their you know, process is, is never ending. And maybe a good one never, never does that. There's, it's always iterative. It's always, OK, that was a success. But can we ensure that this playbook will work next time? If not, how do we change it? How do we improve upon it? And that's a that's like that's what drives Jake every every day. So I think you know Biden has benefited from 
having even his top report, right? Not even just down in the machinery, like his top report, be that be that guy who likes to churn. Yeah. By the way, totally agree with you. It's, you know, I, it's hard to not get inside baseball when talking to you about this stuff because because I, I I have immersed myself in it for thirty years. But I would say Jake is the best national security advisor since Brent Scowcroft, um, and that he has many similarities with Scowcroft in that um, he's willing to uh, avoid the limelight, advise the president, and he has the complete trust not only of the president, but of the rest of the cabinet. Uh, in other words, he's seen as an honest broker. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I think Scowcroft was more effective than, than Kissinger because Kissinger wanted the limelight and, 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 and had sharp elbows. Um, and uh, I, I think Jake has learned a lot from that, and he very much emulates it. Uh, it. It's interesting because inevitably when you talk and write about a national security process, you may start with the national security advisor, but the first question is, how does he play with the Secretary of State? And Scowcroft you know, sat down with James Baker at the beginning and said, okay, this is my role. This is your role. You're the outside guy. I'm the inside guy. Uh, you're very close to the president. I respect that. I'm his best friend. You need to respect that. And they, you know, they sort of had a compact. Tony Blinken was Biden's longest standing advisor, and they have a deep sense of trust. How would you describe the the, the, the the Tony Jake relationship? It's pretty good, right? I mean, they, you know, Jake is about 20 or so years younger, uh, still sees you know, Blinken as as a mentor in many in a, in a sense, uh, but Blinken, I think, is very comfortable in knowing that he has Biden's ear, right? As even though Jake's in the building, in the meetings every day, the president will call him, will call Blinken, ask for his advice. Blinken can call him, give him his unvarnished views, and and Biden will take that in, right? It's it's, but it has led a bit to criticism of Blinken that you know he still sees himself as Biden's staffer as opposed to the Secretary of State. And there was a surprise uh, at the start of the administration, or in the transition, I should say, when a lot of people thought Blinken was going to be the national security advisor, right? I mean, why wouldn't he want to be in the White House running the process? But Biden really saw him as the secretary of state and basically said, Tony, you know, I want you there. And Blinken said, of course, Mr. President, wherever you want me to serve. And, and Jake, who was at the time kind of aiming or thinking about a more domestic role, Although I, I think that's what he was telling people, although I don't think he would have ever turned down National Security Advisor. Um, you know, of course, when that opportunity presented himself, he jumped out. So that gave Jake somewhat of a surprising amount of more influence uh, than I think he expected to have. And so Jake is still somewhat deferential to Lincoln, right? They're, they're not at odds. I mean, there are, of course, differences between state and DOD and, and White House thinking. But Jake's very good at bringing it all in. I, I, as an example, not to bring up Afghanistan again, but it was fascinating to me how after Biden made his decision, there was really no rancor or leaks in the press. And I can tell you, having talked to DOD, who was, of course, especially pushing for, for a continuation of about 2,500, 3,500 troops and a counterterrorism mission, the same kind of mission Biden pushed for when he was vice president, that they said, no, look, we felt heard. It was four months of Jake. And the president, willing to listen to us, willing to hear what we had to say, reading our materials, reading our plans, just he didn't agree. We didn't convince him. But he's the president. We made, he made a decision. We execute. 
that reflects well on Biden, that reflects well on Jake, and that reflects well of, of, of the rest of, of the interagency, that they all feel that they can work and get along. So I think at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the Jake Blinken relationship is, is strong. It's good. They work well together, but there is a key important difference. You know, this is very likely Blinken's last big job in government. Jake is, you know, got more time left. <laughs> so he's, he may be looking at Blinken's job down the line. Maybe he's looking to go to the Senate. Who knows what he's thinking? But he's got more time left. So Jake is, more, I think, more aware of how history is going to look at him or how, how this administration will impact him more than I think Blinken will. Not to say that that makes Blinken more laissez-faire, but they just have a different historical perspective on what all this means for them. Yeah, and I think Blinken has eased, has, has sort of assumed the role of diplomat in chief in in the you know in the best kind of way. Uh, but as you say, the process is critical, uh, and this is a process with a lot of strong personalities. Lloyd Austin has a lot of experience. Of course, Bill Burns could have been the Secretary of State, at, you know, running CIA. Avril Haines, extremely strong. Um, uh, and, and, and so on. Um, and the vice president's deeply engaged, but, you know, I, I have to ask because this is kind of the way the, the, the news cycle works. I, I noticed there's no chapter in your book called Biden forgot which room to go in. Biden was not engaged. You know, Biden, you, you read this book and you, this is a, an engaged president with a clear management style who, has a real mastery of these subjects, and he also has his own quirks, uh, as 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 you reveal and as I've and, and found in talking to people. He not only talks to his team as part of the process, but they're members of the Senate, they're people he's known for a long time, they're world leaders. He's got this kind of process plus Rolodex. I, I know nobody knows what a Rolodex is anymore, but you know what I'm saying. That he's got this kind of ability to reach out beyond the team, formulate his view, and move forward. Is that your sense? Is your sense this is a guy with his hands on the tiller and was uh, um, uh, in command of, of the substance? Well, first, I said my grandma used a Rolodex till her dying day, so I know very well what a Rolodex is. Uh, and probably should still. Yeah. Use thanks. Thanks for comparing me to your grandmother. Keep going. No, no, no. I'm just saying that I know. What it is. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, I, uh, there's nothing in my there's nothing in my reporting two years worth of reporting here where anyone said to me, look, this is a guy who's aloof. He's not aware of the details. They say he's asking probing questions that he's very on top of it. The the caveat where I think that maybe the, the where a wedge allows itself is they do say, look, Jake is really running the show, right? Of course, again, as I mentioned, the president's got the, gives the four corners. He's, of course, making the ultimate decisions. But in terms of the, you know, how this works, like Jake is really running everything. And that the foreign policy is really kind of the mind meld of the two. And, and so there is there are some folks who would say, look, there's an aloofness in the sense that the president maybe gives Jake a bit too, uh, too big a leash, too long a leash. And that he's not fully in charge of the day to day. And then you'll have the, the the proponents of Biden who'll go, well, that's not his job, right? The president has a thousand decisions to make an hour that he tr- he trusts an aide enough to run such a big portfolio and trust that when decisions get to his desk, they they are you know among the best three or how many options they are. But that was the only time I ever heard anything that, that, uh, along these lines that just Biden might be 
he's he's got he's on, hands on the wheel, but maybe just slightly off because Jake's got a third a third hand on it. Hey, our friends at the New Republic. Pen America and the American Library Association are staging a special event in April to fight the book bans that are sweeping our country. Uh, at the event, they will unveil the annual list of the top 10 most challenged books of the year and support authors who have been censored. Uh, as part of this Right to Read celebration, uh, the sponsors will also be naming the winners of the Tony Morrison Courage Award for people on the front lines standing up against book bans. Please support this urgent First Amendment cause by visiting tnr.com slash donate. That's donate with an exclamation point. This is one of the most important battles for American democracy being fought today, please make your voice heard by visiting tnr.com backslash donate today. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things that's striking when you read the book is, I, I think it accurately tells the tale, um, which remains true to this day, although as we'll discuss in a minute, some things have changed. But overseeing the recovery in U.S. standing from the Trump years to where it is now, overseeing a shift in focus away from the forever wars towards the Indo-Pacific region, and really making a major strategic shift, which has included um, uh, you know, the elevation of the Quad, AUKUS, the, the the agreement between South Korea and Japan and the United States, et cetera, et cetera, which uh, is really kind of a big deal. And then the revitalization of NATO in the midst of this because of the of, of Ukraine, um, that's a big deal. But it happens simultaneously to the biggest legislative a, a series of advancements that we've seen since Johnson. With you know the Recovery Act and the Infrastructure Act and 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 uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act and so forth and so a, a president does have to manage his time and come up with a management style that works for him and delegation on, across those those issues I I I, I think is the only way to do it. You can't be down in the weeds and everything, or you end up being Jimmy Carter. Yeah, I mean, I think they, the Biden team realized that the world moves too fast now for the president to be involved in everything. That's That was sort of one of their views. Now, of course, that's not to say that Biden, is again, is aloof or anything like that. Look, to the, to the John Stewart point, right, when they say, look, in meetings he is pointed and, and, and to, you know, aware they go, okay, well, could you film that? <laughs> uh, I think that's that would, you know, there's clearly a concern. He is 82, or he's about to be. He's, you know, he's clearly slower. I just saw some clips of him with Seth Meyers. What what person in their 80s, you know, isn't a little slower? Uh, but as far as I understand it, he is, at least on the national security and foreign policy beat, which is what I cover, he's involved. He's involved. He's aware of what's going on. He's willing to make the calls. You know, he's he's well he's well briefed on everything. He knows what's he's knows what's happening. 
the only thing is that he's just not as in the weeds as you noted and like as day-to-day managey uh then because he's got so much going on he's got jake sullivan to do it and he knows that he's got tony blinken of trusted aid at state and he's got a dear friend in lloyd austin at the pentagon so and he's and he's loyal right biden is fiercely loyal and part of that loyalty extends to the to the notion of I trust you to do your job, so I don't have to be watching after you. That's just part of his leadership style. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I, I, I you know, I loved about this book, and I really admire the re, both the reporting and also the writing. You know, it's a very compelling book, and I think anybody who picks it up will be interested. But I also, you know, have some empathy for you. Because, I, you know, having written books like this, I know that the day I send in the book, the world is going to turn upside down. Uh, and then after I make the corrections, it's going to happen again. And that's, you know, there you were. You've laid this out. It's clearly, you know, Afghanistan is a big story. Shift to the Indo-Pak is a big story. Ukraine, which you cover extremely well, is a big story. And when did you send in your manuscript? Uh, roughly this time last year. Right. So this time last year. And then in the interim, you, you end up with another, um, you know, uh, Gaza war. Um, and you end up with a, a potential turnabout, not literally bef- moment. I mean, this will go, you know, be distributed on Tuesday afternoon. We're recording it sort of Tuesday early afternoon. And I was just watching uh, Senator Schumer and 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 Leader Jeffries talking about this meeting in which they're imploring Mike Johnson. You know, essentially, I'll uh, translate it for our listeners. You know, don't fuck up Ukraine um, because, you know, they made so much progress. So all these things hang in the balance all the time. You know, it, it, it's it, the, the story never, never ends. But the stories that are at the core of your book are now, you know, open to being viewed in a slightly different way. Do you, do you see that? And how would you characterize it? Oh, yeah. I mean, when we first put out uh, or when, you know, when the marketing really kicked up, they were like, oh, the internationalists and look how, you know, with all that's going on in Israel, Hamas, how could you even do that? This book should be shelved. And I'm like, read the book. First of all, <laughs> it's, it's not a holy, uh, you know, yay Biden. It, there's, I think I, I, you know, I praise him where I need to and I hit him where I need to. Um, I've tried to be fair and analytically rigorous throughout. Look, I, I finished the book, or like I said, around this time last year. And the last big thing that happened uh, was I was in Warsaw for Biden's speech in what felt like a campaign rally for NATO, right? I mean, they were playing Twisted Sister, like there were flags everywhere. Everything felt good. I mean, all that was really missing was the mission accomplished flag, right? And of course, what happens that summer, the counteroffensive in Ukraine doesn't go well. October 7th happens. So it just, it's a different view of the internationalists, right? I mean, the, the defense of Ukraine is uh, did not go as planned in the summer. Now it's in Congress's hands. There's a sense that their steady hand on the wheel is now, you know, they're derailed because of Hamas's attack and the response uh, with being very pro-Israel and very pro-Palestinian at the same time, leading to a lot of policy and messaging model. Uh, it causes some issues. So now, you know, whenever I do the update or the paperback, my epilogue is going to be very different, right? I'm going to have to address this, understandably. So I think that there was a sense when I finished writing that this team really kind of had it, that the eight, that the eight team that they call themselves had it figured out, that they had navigated crises. After two years, they rallied the world to Ukraine's defense. They America was back, that they succeeded. 
that has started, that sense has started to erode. And you can see it even now in the re-election campaign. Like at the time I stopped writing, you could already see the wheels turning for 2024. We're going to show how great we are at foreign policy. Now it's just, it's a, it's a minefield. And we're talking about the Michigan primaries, right? I mean, this is a moment where a foreign policy action or decision-making could impact a domestic uh, election. Well, what's really important is that your epilogue is going to be so long and detailed, people have to buy the book twice. Um, I mean, let's let's keep things oh, in perspective here. Oh boy! But 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 having said that, um, I, I I think the book is very relevant in the context of what's happening now, um, uh, and and that's because it really takes a team that has learned from the experiences of the first couple of years plus the experiences of their lengthy careers before that, to handle situations as complicated as these. Um, you know, I, I've been very critical of the, the embrace of Netanyahu the second time around and, and, and sort of the carte blanche and what that's led to in Gaza. But, you know, literally by next week, there could be a ceasefire agreement. The hostages could be released. The U.S. could use that to move on to uh, a regional dialogue, which could conceivably uh, help advance the idea of a Palestinian state. Uh, there could be new leadership in the Palestinian Authority. Sweden joined NATO this week. Uh, you know, it, it maybe somebody broke through to Mike Johnson in this meeting, and the money will get uh, you know on its way to um, Ukraine, and and the title turned there. It's not like these issues are ever done, but the reason I think your story is so important is it gives you an insight into how this group of people are probably working these issues and why the story is never what it was last week, because they're always trying to, you know, turn things for the better, advance U.S. national interests in the context of it. In other words, we don't know. I, I don't know how your epilogue is going to turn out because, be, because as you know, there, there are still possibilities that this team can, you know, forge out of this. It's it's true. And look, if there's one thing that defines Team Biden from domestic to foreign policy, it's that Twitter's not real life, right? And they, in their mind, they, they understand the backlash to the to the Israel policy, right? But they feel that this is the best way forward for for many reasons, and I'm happy to go into it, but. Uh, their 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 main push is like this is the best of bad options, and we understand the concerns, but we're going to get to a better place with this policy at a faster rate than if we went some other route. That's at least how they think about it. And you're right, from Jake on down, the the churn, the the work that where they're calling people, they're like they're do they're doing the work, right? It's different from the Trump years where he tweeted something and then everyone followed that tweet. Things are instead of top down, it's going it's bottom up. That's how this is supposed to work. So I, I, in this sense, you're right. There is some sort of optimism and we know, we know that they know there's a problem and we know that they're working it. Now, will they change their ways in, in, in spots that, you know, make people happy? Probably not and probably not fast enough. And I think there's genuine questions to ask of whether they were too reliant on the 2021 playbook, knowing that the context of after, of October 7th and, and when where the Netanyahu government was at the time, at this time, you know, it was very different, right? I mean, the, the attack was what it was, but it was far-right government. There's an Israeli society that is supportive of the campaign to get rid of Hamas. 
And even though the, the Israeli people aren't happy with Bibi, they want him to finish the job. You know, maybe the hug in public, push in private style, might, maybe that wasn't enough. Maybe that was enough in 2021 where, where it was a lot. It was still dangerous and deadly, but it was a less big event. Uh, I think you, they could, I, the criticism there, I think, is completely fair. Well, you know, one of the things I know about the criticism is they listen to it. They don't turn it out. If you offer criticism, they don't define you as an enemy. They take it in. Um, I, I admire that. That's really hard to do in Washington, particularly when you get kind of groupthink in a series of NSC meetings. You know, it's it's becomes us against them. They haven't they haven't really gotten into that. Well, I, if I may, there's there's a bit of that, right? There's a bit of well, they don't understand. I think that's natural in any administration, right? We have the intel. We're the ones doing this every day. We're the ones talking to the, to the people that matter. They don't understand. And I will tell you, and granted, this is having been a think tanker, I understand this gripe, right? When they do the, the usual public affairs reach outs to think tankers, they'll afterwards will go, well, they kind of brush aside all of our thoughts. And that's, that's a think tanker senior fellow thing to say after a meeting with the White House. But still, you know, there's, um, there is a sense that they are that they are trying to listen at least that they are open to it. But the criticism I heard throughout really was, and this was mostly outside the White House, was the everything is controlled in the NSC, arguably perhaps more than the Trump years even, and that there's they're they're unwilling to listen to too many outside ideas. That there's you can play within the right bounds, but they're they're not really for creativity. I'm they the White House will push back on this, of course they did, as I note in the book. But that is still a permeating view from, you know, Foggy Bottom to the Pentagon to um, to Langley and other spots that there that there might just not be enough. There's a lot of input, but maybe not a lot of absorption. But it seems like your experience is a bit different. No, I mean, I I, I see I see what you're coming from. And 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 I, you know, I guess my my experience is I'm just comparing it to, you know, the, the, the all the other administrations I've written about and the the relative uh, openness to other ideas, the relative op- effectiveness of the process in seeking those ideas. Um, uh, but it's natural. And I've sat in, you know, I've sat with somebody, you know, a week ago who said to me, well, we would lose all our leverage with the Israelis if we tried another approach. And and you know, I was like, what leverage? But you know, it's like I I don't I don't see the leverage getting you much, right? Um, and then they'll go well behind the scenes and et cetera, et cetera. But but it's it's a different vibe altogether. It's a different vibe from the Trump vibe, of course, which was kind of chaotic and Trump down, as you would say. It's also a different vibe, very much. We could talk about this for another hour uh, from the Obama team. Mm-hmm. Even though some of these people were on it, uh, I think a lot of them said, "Oh, the Obama years, there were some big mistakes, and we want to fix that." Did you come away with that, by the way? As a, oh, 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 yeah, oh, yeah, no question. I mean, one even before I started writing the book, when I had early meetings at the White House, they were like, "Do not expect Obama 2.0. This is this is not your, you know, this is going to be wholly different and, and more progressive." Is how they were describing themselves early on. Uh, of course, that has taken a hit recently with. Israel Hamas, but that's how they portrayed themselves. And the 
like for Ukraine is the perfect example, right? There are a lot of people, Jake included, John Finer included, uh, the deputy national security advisor, Tony Blinken, uh, at state that were there when Putin took a chunk out of Eastern Ukraine and Crimea in 2014 with kind of nary a response from, Obama. granted there were sanctions, et cetera, but at the end of the day, not really much reprimand. And when they saw that, that intelligence in the fall of 2021, right, shortly after the fall of Kabul, they were like, not again. We're not, this is not going to happen again. And Jake, et cetera, they created this tiger team, right? And they said, okay, we will talk to the Russians. If they've got grievances, we'll talk to them. We'll, we'll try to solve this at the table, not the battlefield. We'll work with our European allies to let them know what we've got, what we know, and what they should know. We will set up san- a sanctions program. So the second the tanks roll in, if they roll in, we'll hit them hard. We'll discuss our potential military options, including, you know, everything short of sending troops. What can we do? That was a that was like right away, I mean, almost immediate from the moment, you know, John Finer first sees the intel, runs into Jake's office and is like, hey, we got something going on here. Uh, that that was pretty much the trauma of 2014 of the Obama years. It's sort of in the background. Granted, this is a team that wanted to act. That was there's something massive happening. But in the back of their minds, there really was like, we're not going to get screwed on this again. In fact, uh, Jake went on record with something. He thinks the, one of the funny things about Jake for all of his, you know, Rhodes Scholar, Yale, he's a Billy, he loves Billy Joel and he loves movies. And there's a moment and you could almost argue the entire Ukraine strategy was based off of Austin Powers. This is how he described it. There's a scene where there's a cop going, no, no, right? A bad guy cop, no. And then it pans out to Austin Powers and Elizabeth Hurley on a steamroller completely on the other side of the hallway, moving in slow motion. And Jake said, we don't want to be the cop, right? We don't want to see this coming from a mile away and not having done anything about it. So it's the Austin Powers principle. And that's how Jake kind of sees not just Ukraine, but generally foreign policy now. Um, So I think we have Mike Myers to thank for where we are. Well, um, I, you know, I have to say, I guess, you know, I'm sort of privileged to be able to go and sit with these guys too. And every couple of months, I'll sit down with Jake and we'll talk. And a month and a half before all this happened, roughly, I you know sat with him and he took out a map and he said, this is what this, he could do this, or he could do this, or they could do this. If they do this, we'll do this. If they do this, we'll do this. And I was like, this is what you want a national security advisor to be doing, to have gamed it out to understand the alternatives, to be ahead of the curve. The Ukrainians at the time were saying, oh, this isn't going to happen. Some people in Europe were saying, oh, this isn't going to happen. But these guys were on it uh, and preparing for it. And whether the origin was, you know, Austin Powers or 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 their own their own work experience, um, it, there have been moments that have been quite impressive. Um, in terms of their preparation and their analytical process. Uh, I think this book also captures that. Um, and so, uh, for, as I said at the outset, the book is The Internationalists, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump. Um, and uh, Alex, it's a terrific accomplishment. And um, enjoy it before you start thinking about the epilogue. <laughs> uh, it, it really, you know, there are a lot of people who write about this stuff. Uh, you've done as good a job of it as anybody I've ever seen. And I really hope that people go out and read this. Uh, but for now, congratulations. And for everybody listening, 
Uh, join us again real soon as we continue to discuss these issues. And who knows, maybe we'll coax Alex to come back at some time in the future. Until then, bye-bye.